Hiya, Duncan Green here with the uh, latest roundup of posts on From Poverty to Power. Um, it's been a bit of a slow summer, po um, post-wise, blog-wise. It always is, you know, you have fewer conversations, people are away, um, and this summer's been slower than most because I've had my head down updating from um, How Change Happens. Uh, so hopefully it'll all pick up, but it won't pick up yet because I'm hopping on a plane on Saturday and going to Nairobi for the latest round of uh, training uh, under the Geli program, which I've talked about a few times, where we're uh, helping uh, senior UN, INGO and Red Cross, Red Crescent people sharpen their um, skills at influencing. So I'll be back the week after that, and I imagine things will get very busy pretty quickly once we're into further into September start of term it'll all go crazy so i shall probably start blogging a bit more often come later this month however got a couple of weeks posts five posts in all a couple of them were links i liked which people seem to enjoy and uh, it's a way of sort of um, uh, pointing out good stuff um, and other things so one thing i had was <clears throat> i'm trying to cope with the new version of twitter and it seems to me that the you know uh, the it's it's very hard to work without a blue tick. Um, if you pay for your blue tick, you get you can use TweetDeck, which was my preferred platform. Sorry to get all techy, and there's just loads of other benefits. On the other hand, I don't want to give my money to Elon Musk, so I did the right thing and asked the people, and the people voted two to one against a blue tick. So I will persevere with the free version of Twitter. Uh, after the people have spoken and uh, keep transferring to to LinkedIn, which I kind of like, but I'm taking a while to really get to grips with it. So if you are on LinkedIn and you want to follow me, please move across to LinkedIn because I'm going to do more and more on that, I suspect, and less and less on the dying bird that is Twitter. A um, couple other things on those links I liked, um, just some silly stuff. A guy called Adam Sharp who, twists, who tweets bizarre things like a list of men killed by fruit and vegetables. This is the kind of stuff that the internet is for. So he had Roman Emperor Frederick III, who died from a melon overdose, US President Zachary Taylor from a cherry overdose, comic poet Antiphanes struck by a pear, stuntman Bobby Leach slipped on orange peel, and Tory MP William Payne Galway, who fell, <laughs> sorry, who fell and landed on a turnip. So this is, uh, I, I know it's childish and I really should have got over this kind of stuff, but I love that kind of thing. Plus uh, some good news. Um, yeah, we need to have some good news in these times. Uh, very interesting reformist candidate won in the Guatemalan elections, Bernardo Arevalo. And uh, the New Humanitarian, which is an absolutely brilliant site, do, do subscribe if you're not already on following their, their work, they did a video, including an interview with the man himself, setting out some of the good aspects of Arevalo's win in Guatemala to become president and some of the risks. The bad guys are not going away. They might well try and topple him. All sorts of possible, you know, um, uh, attempts to restrict his room for maneuver as he tries to do some good things in Guatemala. So that was nice. Thanks to New Humanitarian for that. Then it got a bit, uh, went a bit more academic, I think, in a way. Uh, next post was, who decides what constitutes knowledge on climate change? And this is something that my colleague Irene Houts sent over from her 2021 chapter in a book 
and the uh, that is gated and so is the chapter so i hate that but i thought i'd um uh, blog about it because it's really interesting the title is a little inaccessible the urgency for epistemic and political climate justice um, co-authored with Jacobo Ocharan and Valina Petrova um, and it's for an edited volume called Knowledge for the Anthropocene um, you know words like epistemic ontological teleological I can't think how many times I've looked them up in the dictionary and I just can't remember what they mean I don't know about you but anyway the content is good, so some extracts. The chapter describes how climate change and inequality, climate justice, sorry, and inequality are currently framed. It highlights that these framings emerge from two injustices that deserve more attention, epistemic and political injustice. Climate change policies are rooted in a particular body of knowledge that ignores invaluable complementary understandings. The global climate justice endeavour is held back further by the fundamental political injustices of climate change policy processes and economic systems. I'm going to concentrate on the climate justice piece um, and the epistemic justice piece because I think we kind of know about the political injustice. So a handy introduction to the concept of climate justice. Until quite recently, climate inequality and in particular as inverse climate justice were not well established concepts. Climate justice is a young 21st century idea that highlights the political and ethical nature of the climate crisis and its impact. It unequivocally links the breaching of climate change boundaries with the breaching of the rights of affected people. The concept challenged the status quo in two ways. First, it called out the false neutrality of the term climate change that focused on environmental or biophysical processes ignoring the role of the political and economic systems that gave rise to the climate crisis. Second, it challenged simplistic environmental movements that have at times quite profoundly failed to recognise the unequal distributive impacts of climate degradation on people. To date, there is no agreed definition of climate justice, but a clear overview, which was an internal Oxfam paper written by Ruth Main, argues that it's Multiple facets can be described in terms of four aspects of justice and three forms. So the aspects are intergenerational justice, international justice, intranational justice within countries. And the types of justice are distributional justice. So relating to the distribution of responsibilities, capacities, costs, benefits. Procedural justice, who is at the decision making table. Recognition justice, recognizing a taking account of taking action to address structural constraints, and corrective justice, providing remedies for past injustices. So that was quite a useful little typology there. Num the next uh, quote I used was the case for epistemic justice. Where there is epistemic justice, different kinds of knowledge contribute fairly to critical decisions. So epistemic means your understanding of what constitutes truth. Or knowledge I think do correct me if I'm wrong I'm still still trying to fix that in my head in the world of climate justice however epistemic injustice prevails epistemic injustice extends beyond elevating one body of knowledge over another such as scientific knowledge over experiential knowledge it includes ignoring knowledge sources due to their identity for example not accepting an Arabic farmers experience due to their skin color it means ignoring some knowledges because their vocabularies or values do not fit with those that are privileged. 
It also most fundamentally means ignoring or devaluing what sort of questions about climate change and humans' relationship to their natural environment are asked and the various ways of knowing with which they can be answered. This sent me back to some of the really early work on climate change in Oxfam where you know, we had an interesting thing which was farmers were telling us that the climate was changing before it showed up in the, in the stats. And so you had this thing like, do I believe the farmers because they know best? Or do I believe the stats because they are scientific, you know, the, the temperature measurements or whatever? Um, and we went with believing the farmers. And I think, you know, in a way, they, they, they came out early on this. So I think there's a really interesting practical question about this as well, arising out of who do you believe, who, who gets to say what is true. And then finally, what's holding back epistemic, in, uh, epistemic justice? Disconnecting climate justice, so climate science, from local climate knowledge is exacerbating non-inclusive climate policies. Three epistemic problems exist. An inaccessible science, the scientific rejection of local knowledge, and the technical impossibility of including local knowledges. Climate science has created a body of knowledge about the climate crisis that is abstract, a specialist area of scientific knowledge that has no cultural meaning. This body of knowledge is inaccessible to precisely those people who should be using the evidence to influence decision-making and governmental action to fight the climate crisis, whether global or local. One criticism of dominant scientific representations of climate change is the separation of scientific facts, statistics and models from the very geographies and timescales that people can understand and act on. Local and indigenous people have been largely portrayed as victims of climate change with limited agency to know and to respond. This misrepresentation pervades all aspects of society, including science and policymaking. Research on printed media representation of indigenous people and climate change in four Anglo-Saxon countries over a 20 year period found that, and this is a quote, indigenous knowledge was mainly documented where it easily corroborates scientific knowledge or when the impacts it identifies are socio-cultural and thus beyond the purview of scientific, in inverted commas, research. In such interpretations, complex knowledge systems are reduced to simple observations valuable because they originate from regions where scientific data is sparse or confirm scientific findings. A focus on indigenous belief systems, cosmologies and alternative ways of knowing and interpreting climate change are largely absent from the articles reviewed. Quantitative rigour, or the lack of it, is a key technical requirement that leads climate science to avoid incorporating local knowledge. Despite some efforts around epistemic complementarity, the majority of climate scientists and policymakers believe that indigenous knowledge lacks quantitative rigour as it is transmitted verbally over generations living in a particular environment. Another technical difficulty is diversity. Many thousands of local knowledges are in a standoff against one dominant paradigm of Western scientific knowledge. In the rare cases where climate scientists consider some form of local knowledge, only a select few are included. But possibly the greatest obstacle comes from the perception that local knowledge should be folded into climate scientific understandings instead of a more open-minded approach of mutual co-learning. And then, very interesting, I think, on the whole nature of the scientific project on climate change. Finally, here's a paragraph I'm really going to have to think about. Stubborn barriers exist that hinder local knowledges from informing climate decision making. 
Cartesian-based science is appropriate when uncertainty is low, controllability is high, and the rate of change is slow. It is based on assumptions of equilibrium and controllability, so conditions of high uncertainty and low controllability, such as climate, call for additional ways of knowing. That's a really thought-provoking paragraph once you read it a couple of times. Lots more in the full chapter. Please take a look. Next piece was a piece by me. The world order seems to be in turmoil. What's going on? Over the summer, there appears to be a big upheaval in the international system, and I'm wondering what it all means. In August, the five existing members of the BRICS club, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, expanded it with invitations to Argentina, Egypt, Ethiopia, Iran, Saudi Arabia, and the UAE, which, as far as I can work out, makes it BRICS UI. Um, according to the FT, and I'm afraid it's gated as well, the size of the new 11 country groupings puts the G7, which is Canada, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, UK, US and the EU, into the shade in terms of both population and GDP. Now, expansion can mean dilution and the BRICS is already a pretty fractious club. It's glued together more by what it's against, northern dominated global institutions like the IMF and World Bank, rather than what it is for. Given the rivalry between China and India, for example, northern foreign policy wonks are pretty sceptical that the BRICS constitutes anything more than a series of annual meetings. Plus, it is not clear if all of these invitations will be accepted. But it is nonetheless interesting to see these big intercontinental groupings develop without any Europeans or North Americans at the table. Another fascinating piece, also by the FT's James Kynge, K-Y-N-G-E, I think it's Kynge or Kynge, puts this in the broader perspective of China's increasing assertiveness in the global order. Here are some highlights and thoughts. First, China seems to have a joined up approach to its international diplomacy. <gasps> Gosh, that would be nice. Uh, sorry, uh, a depressed British moment there. Built around three interlocking initiatives, the Global Development Initiative, the Global Security Initiative, and the Global Civilization Initiative. And there's links to all those in the piece. According to Kind, these represents this represents China's boldest move yet to enlist the support of the global south to amplify Beijing's voice on the world stage and build up China's profile in the UN. And that's according to Chinese officials and commentators. What strikes me here, this is me talking now, what strikes me here is that China sees the UN as central to its strategy. Whereas for the Western powers uh, that China is challenging, the UN is often an afterthought or is just simply bypassed uh, when achieving green agreement gets a bit difficult. According to one senior Chinese official, the UN, with its 15 specialised agencies that exercise global governance in several areas such as finance, telecoms, health and hunger alleviation, lies at the very centre of China's worldview and its plans to boost its influence. Now, I imagine that that is both good and bad news for the UN. Good because rather than sideline it like the US and Europe have often done, China has opted to put it at the centre. Bad because China is, according to the article, framing the UN's human rights principles as a US-led Western concept and pushing what it calls true multilateralism based on equal status for all countries, which means governments, whether democratic or otherwise. So a way, yeah, downgrading the, the role of the UN in, in terms of human rights and universal values, and it becomes a negotiation uh, forum between governments. It's also apparently fairly blatantly swapping aid for votes, China is. Um, mind you, the Western powers have done a bit of that as well. In terms of trade and investment, 
China is also making an important long-term bet on the developing world, which is growing much faster both in terms of population and GDP than the West. This year, for the first time ever, China exported more to its Belt and Road partner countries in the developing world than it exported to the US, EU and Japan combined. And there's a really striking graph of just how China's export markets have changed and crossed over in 23. China's flurry of diplomatic activity goes beyond the UN to a series of other fora that it has set up, such as the Shanghai Cooperation Agreement, which, like the BRICS, is hardly a like-minded group. India and Pakistan are both members, for example. But again, it's a conversation entirely outside the Western-slash-Northern sphere of influence. More generally, we appear to be moving in the title of another FTSA to an a la carte world of shifting conversations and alliances that represents an opportunity for much of the world, not just to be wooed, but also to play one off against the other. And many are doing this with alacrity and increasing skill, not so much a non-aligned movement as a multi-aligned movement, as middling powers shop around for the best deals. That is really interesting. For anyone involved in international advocacy, gone are the days of a fairly predictable round of G7, World Trade Organization, UN events. Keeping abreast of this you know, much more complex churn of uh, international organisations and working out which truly matter and which are just talking shops or shopping trips for diplomats and where, if anywhere, you and your organisation and partners can get traction is going to take up an increasing amount of time and effort. So I've got, got some interesting comments on that as well. One final point. Whenever I read about the BRICS, I just think back to the fact that the actual acronym was coined by a guy called Jim O'Neill when he was working at Goldman Sachs. This must be every policy wonk's dream. You come up with some random thing like, oh, let's put the uh, names of those countries in an arbitrary order, and you come up with the word brick. And then 20 years down the line, it's become this massive international institution. Very, very odd, but fun. Final post I want to cover was a post by Jonathan Fox and Jeffrey Halleck who are at the Accountability Research Center at the School of International Service at the American University in Washington. And Jonathan and Jeffrey have, have been doing a lot of work on um, uh, accountability. In particular, this piece is on how more open government can bolster USAID's localization agenda. So this week, USAID Administrator Samantha Power is scheduled to give a keynote, which apparently is now a thing. It's, but I always call it a keynote speech, but now you just say a keynote. Or you even use it as a verb, scheduled to keynote. That was something I couldn't accept in the draft from Jonathan, so I made it into a keynote. Sorry, um, getting a bit um, uh, pedantic there. Anyway, at the Open Government Partnership Global Summit in Estonia, in November 2021, she wowed the international development community with a pair of very ambitious localization targets. 25% of direct funding for local organisations by 2025 and 50% of programming to be locally led by 2030. In March 2023, USAID announced a new acquisition and assistance strategy to address some of the many institutional constraints to meeting these targets. No doubt FB2P readers are already familiar with the lags in the localization process. USAID has been frank about this, notably with their fiscal year 2022 localization progress report, which shared a good news, bad news story. So direct funding for national organizations reached nearly $1.6 billion, but that only added up to 10.2% of obligations. <clears throat> the USAID report also spotlights country by country progress, which could motivate a race to the top 
insofar as most decisions about localised funding are currently made at the country office level. It sketched out their new indicators for tracking good practices towards the much harder to measure goal of locally led development, which is the 2030 um, uh, uh, target. But so far, patterns of progress towards direct funding for national organisations are highly lopsided, concentrated overwhelmingly in Africa and in the health sector. In Latin America, which is an area Jonathan's been writing about for decades, the share of direct local funding went down rather than up. We think an open government lens can shed light on the challenge of localising aid. Open government is notably absent from the localisation agenda, at least based on what is public so far. For locally-led development to be meaningful, national stakeholders need more user-friendly, user-centred information about where aid funding goes and how project decisions are made. Otherwise, there's a risk that official consultations will become box-ticking exercises lacking the relevant information to make them usable by civil society and others. So, <clears throat> they then go into a bit more detail, which I'm not going to trouble you with on USAID, um, but I wanted to talk a bit about its case study. So, in published by Inspired by Publish What You Fund's tracking of localization patterns across 10 countries, and in consultation with counterparts in Colombia, the Accountability Research Center is doing a deeper dive into localization at the country level. Colombia is a relevant bellwether because it's the largest recipient of US aid in Latin America, and the US has made a significant and sustained contribution to funding the peace process, including a commitment to contribute to the innovative ethnic chapter of the peace accord with recent support from US and Colombian advocacy groups. Yet in spite of Colombia's robust civil society, the share of direct USAID funding going to Colombian organizations peaked at 10.9% back in 2017 and has dropped steadily since then back to 3.8% in 2022. For Colombians interested in engaging with USAID, a good first place to turn would be the project pages on the USAID country website. Many are bilingual and provide important specifics, yet less than half of the 45 project pages provide the basic information of the names of the implementing partners and the project budgets. Wow. Foreignassistance.gov provides useful data. So they're, they're basically saying there's a bunch of different websites you have to learn to use. So it's a mess and very difficult for civil society to, to access. Foreignassistance.gov provides useful data about country level sectoral trends with USAID, though independent analysts may want to unpack the official categories. For Colombia, sectoral analysis shows relatively small shares of the USAID portfolio are currently going to global and national priorities, such as anti-corruption and environmental protection. Implementing partner activities and funding patterns remain often opaque, yet remarkably, some details about which national organizations are funded, about which national organizations are funded by implementing partners are accessible elsewhere on the rather unwieldy usaspending.gov. They're only for less than a third of Columbia projects. And on and on and on it goes. So, so what you know, um, Jonathan and Jeffrey are arguing here is, yeah, there are these bits of information which are really time consuming to access and they're only partial. The open government sort of push for open government and, and for transparency about aid allocations could really help the, the parallel push for localization by allowing local organizations to find out where on earth the money's going and then 
lobby for you know better better and greater localization this seems to have hit a nerve there were really interesting comments from people working on mexico tanzania saying oh that colombia coast study is really interesting we should do it on ours so i hope that that's yeah that's exactly what the blog's for to try and get conversations going point out interesting ideas interesting methodologies things you can use so if that goes ahead i'll be very chuffed okay and on that note uh, that's enough for one uh, hot week i'm now going to go off and get ready for trip to nairobi have a great weekend talk to you in a couple of weeks bye